All right, we are continuing our study of the book of Acts here on the Listener's Commentary. And in this session, we'll be looking at Acts chapter 23, verses 1 through 35. And again, it's a continuation of the story that began really at the end of chapter 21, then on through 22. And here, we're still really in the same story. And it's going to be one big story, really almost all the way up until the end. But certainly for the next several chapters, it's really tightly woven together. So this story, the events that happen here in Acts 23 flows directly out of what happened at the end of chapter 22. So to set that in context, we need to recall that in chapter 22, Paul gives his testimony. He gives it while standing on the stairs from the temple in Jerusalem up into the fortress of Antonia, the Roman military barracks. The crowd in the temple has been very hostile, almost to the point of killing Paul. And so the Romans literally carried Paul up onto the stairs. Once they got him out of harm's way, they set him down. Paul asked for permission to speak to the crowd. He does so. He speaks to the crowd and he speaks in either Hebrew or Aramaic, which means the Roman military commander can't understand what Paul is saying, but the crowd can. And the crowd listens closely to Paul as he tells how he was... uh, brought from hostility towards Jesus and his followers to faith in Jesus by a vision of Jesus on the Damascus Road. And they listen closely up to the point where Paul mentions that Jesus told him he would send him far away to preach to the Gentiles. At that moment, the crowd there in the temple, their emotions erupt again. They get hostile again. Uh, They start calling for Paul to be killed. The Roman military commander has no idea what the problem is. He wants to interrogate Paul by flogging or scourging. Uh, Then all of a sudden, once he gets them all stretched out, Paul announces that he's a citizen. And that shuts down that whole thing because you can't interrogate a Roman citizen by scourging. And so uh, now the commander is afraid of Paul and Paul's actually got a little leverage over him. Well, the commander still needs to know what is the deal with this man and why do people hate him so much? So the next day, the day after Paul was seized in the temple and spoke to the crowd on the stairs, the Roman military commander orders the Jewish leaders, the elders and the chief priests to convene and calls them together and brings Paul to them. And he wants them to sort of investigate Paul and see if in doing that, he can figure out what the issue is, what the charges are against Paul. So he brings Paul down to this this group of leaders. We don't know how many. We're not even sure it was in a formal official body of all the Sanhedrin, but it was enough of them that the The commander was hoping he could figure out what the charges were against Paul. So he brings Paul to them. And verse 1 of chapter 23 picks up with Paul before the council. And then he's going to speak to them. Verse 1 says, Now, looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life with an entirely good conscience before God up to this day. But the high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. So Paul opens his defense before the the ruling body of the Jews here by uh, uh, basically asserting that I've always tried to do what was right in the eyes of God. I've lived my life under God, before God, in the presence of God, and always trying to please God. And really, that's true. Even though when Paul writes like first. Timothy, he'll say he's the chief of sinners. 
he's he's writing looking back on his career as a persecutor of Christians, right? But when he was persecuting Christians, he was doing it because he thought he was pleasing God. And he was motivated by his zeal for God. So he, he, what he's simply saying here is, I have been driven by doing what I believed was right in the eyes of God for my entire life. Now, he didn't always get it right, but that was the motive, which is what made him such a good missionary candidate for Jesus to choose him on the road to Damascus. He knew if, if he could get Saul pointed in the right direction, Saul would be an unstoppable force, and it proved true. So Paul begins his speech before the Jewish leaders by asserting his, his living under the authority and before the presence of God for his entire life. Well, the high priest, Ananias, ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Like, as far as he's concerned, that's absolutely blasphemous. How could you say such a thing? Strike him on the mouth. Paul immediately responds to Ananias's command in verse 3. Then Paul said, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? But those present said, are you insulting God's high priest? So Paul's immediate reaction to the order for him to be struck is to speak out against Ananias. And it seems that Paul is actually probably in the wrong here. And I think we're going to get an apology by Paul in verse 5. And the reason I say I think Paul's in the wrong is Paul's own writings, as well as the writings of other apostles, such as Peter, tell us that when reviled, we don't revile in return. When insulted, we don't insult in return. We follow the example of Jesus, who, uh, when he was brought to trial, um, didn't speak in his defense, right? And so our job is to respond to um, cursing with blessing. And Paul doesn't do that here. And so it seems Paul's actually in the wrong. He goes against his own standard and he violates the example of Jesus, um, in how he responds in this moment. And when those standing near him call him on it, are you insulting God's high priest? I mean, Paul's standard's bigger even than that. You just don't respond to any insulting, whether it's the high priest or not, right? But certainly not the high priest. And so when those call Paul on this in verse 4, Paul responds in verse 5 this way. Paul said, I was not aware, brothers, that he is the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. And some have read verse 5 and said, oh yeah, Paul's being sarcastic. I don't think so. I think Paul's being sincere. Certainly his response of brothers and then his quoting of Old Testament scripture uh, that would call Paul to account. I think this is Paul's way of offering apology. I was in the wrong. I violated what was right. I shouldn't have done that. And I think Paul is offering a, an apology here in verse 5. Now, how is it that Paul would not know he is the high priest? Well, there's a variety of reasons for that, uh, potential reasons. We're not totally sure all that's going on. One is, since this was not like a formal official uh, assembly of the council, it's possible that the high priest wasn't wearing his official priestly clothes, right? Like the commander gets up in the morning, orders the Jewish chief priest to get together because he, he, you know, he wants to figure out what's going on with Paul. So this is a assembly called by a Roman military officer in Jerusalem. So he may not even be wearing his high priestly robes. Possible. Uh, second, um, 
there's been just massive turnover in the high priesthood and Paul hasn't been in Jerusalem a whole lot. And so Paul just may not know exactly who the high priest is. And sometimes people would be high priest for a while, then they'd be deposed, but they still had influence. In fact, from the year 37 to the year 70, there were 28 different high priests. And Paul left Jerusalem in the year 37, and he's only been back once in between then and now. And so he could be very confused about who the high priesthood is. And Ananias, during that time period, he actually was one of the ones that ruled as high priest the longest. He actually ruled as high priest from about 48 to 58 or 59. And he was then replaced as high priest by Ishmael ben Fabai in 58 or 59. And that's right where we're at. So there's just a lot of ambiguity here as to who the high priest is. And by the way, Ananias wasn't like, you know, a model citizen. He wasn't like a model priesthood. He reigned as high priest, as I said, from 48 to 58-ish for about a decade. And he actually was a fairly brutal scheming man known for greed and use of violence. Um, He was actually hated by the Jewish nationalists because he was so pro-Roman. Josephus actually describes Ananias as uh, confiscating tithes given to the ordinary priests and gave lavish bribes to the Romans to maintain his power and authority. He was so hated by Jewish nationalists that during the war with Rome, Jews burned his home to the ground. He fled to Herod's palace. He was finally trapped in an aqueduct on the palace grounds and killed. So, He was not a nice man. He was not a well-loved man and certainly didn't live in keeping with the law himself. Nevertheless, I still think what we have here is Paul's form of an apology. I went against what scripture tells me. I went against what God tells me I should do. You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. And so I see this as Paul's apology for the way he reacted uh, initially to the order for him to be struck. Now, at that point, then, Uh, We get the rest of what happens here before the council. Paul, verse 6, perceiving, that is literally knowing, Paul's been around. He, He knows these guys. He knows how this council works. So Paul, knowing that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, began crying out in the council, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, and I'm on trial for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. And so Paul Uh, knowing the the tension between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, calls on his background as a Pharisee and points specifically to the issue of the resurrection from the dead. And this led for the entire council to be disrupted over this. Now, this is not, on Paul's part, a mere tactical move to divide the council. It has that effect, and Paul probably knew it would have that effect, but it's not a pure tactical move. It really is Paul focusing on the central issue, Jesus and his resurrection. That's the key issue. Is there a resurrection from the dead? Because I believe Jesus was raised from the dead. And I know there are my fellow Pharisees here and they believe in the resurrection of the dead. And you Sadducees don't. I believe it's already happened in the person of Jesus. And so this is a way to really focus on the main questions. Well, verse 7, when he said this, a dissension occurred between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Now, that last little bit 
is a little confusing. We know from uh, the New Testament, as well as from Josephus and other writings, that the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. And part of that was because the Sadducees only recognized the first five books of the Old Testament, the Law of Moses, as binding authority. And in those five books, there's no clear indication of the resurrection. And so they rejected the uh, resurrection as sort of a novel invention not found in the authoritative books. And that's their rationale for it. But there are angels and spirits in those books. So what is this about nor an angel nor a spirit? And that's the bit that's confusing what that latter half of verse 8 is actually getting at. Part of what may explain that is the Jewish idea that uh, people kind of became angels after death. So like life after death that kind of existed almost as an, in, in an angelic realm. We saw that in Acts chapter 12 when Peter was broke out of jail. He goes to the place where he knows the Christians are praying. He bangs on the door. Uh, Rhoda goes to the door. Here's Peter, right? She goes back and report. Peter's at the gate. No, it's his angel. Um, and so some scholars have speculated maybe that's what is being gotten at here is the Sadducees don't just reject the resurrection. They actually reject life after death, even in the form of a spirit or an angel. Pharisees acknowledge all of that, that there's life after death and then there's resurrection at the end of time. That may be what is being gotten at at the end of that verse, but not 100% certain because we don't know everything that the Sadducees believed and taught. Either way, the result of Paul saying that he's a Pharisee and he's actually on trial for the resurrection of the dead, that led to a massive dissension in the assembly. And so verse 9, And a great uproar occurred, and some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and started arguing heatedly, saying, We find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. And recall that yesterday, the day before, when, Pete, when Paul was speaking on the stairs, he said that Jesus had spoke to him. So they're saying, maybe that really did happen. Maybe he really did have a vision. Maybe an angel spoke to him. Maybe a spirit spoke to him, right? Um, and so now they're heatedly arguing against the Sadducees. And verse 10, and when a great dissension occurred, the commander was afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them. And he ordered the troops to go down, take him away from them by force, and bring him back to the barracks. Look, I find this absolutely hilarious because this is what keeps happening. Paul's in the temple. There's a great uproar. They shut the gates of the temple. They seize Paul. And they're about ready to beat him to death when the commander sends in troops. Takes Paul away, brings him to the stairs. Paul speaks to the people, and then all of a sudden, there's a great uproar, and, Paul, and the commander takes Paul into the barracks. Now he brings him down the next day to the, the chief priest and the council, and there's some talking going on, and then eventually there's this great uproar, and Paul's the focal point of it, and the commander has no clue what's going on. Why does Paul make these Jews so blooming angry? And he doesn't know. He can't figure it out. Um, he's beginning to get some inkling that it has something to do with 
disagreements among the Jews, and we'll see that and what happens and what follows, but he really doesn't have any clarity as to exactly what's going on. So here in this case, he once again sends soldiers into the council chambers uh, and takes Paul away from them by force to protect Paul. He has to do that. Paul's a Roman citizen. He can't have a Roman citizen being killed on his watch when there's been no official charges against him. Now, that night, after that had happened in the morning, here's what, what the Lord does for Paul. Verse 11. Now, on the following night, the, the Lord stood near him, that would be Paul, and said, Be courageous, for as you have testified to the truth about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify in Rome also. So the Lord appears to Saul in the night and reassures him, you're going to get to Rome. That's been your intention, right? This was your whole goal. Well, you're going to get there. Paul's just not going to get there the, the way he expected, but he's going to get to testify in Rome as well about Jesus and about his faith and all of that. So Paul has been reassured, but he's still in custody and the Jews still hate him and the Romans are still not sure what to do with him. That's where we're at. So verse 12, when it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy and put themselves under an oath saying they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. And there were more than 40 Jews who formed this plot. So now there's a conspiracy against Paul and this group of 40 Jews, actually more than 40 Jews who formed this plot, took this vow, this oath that we're not going to eat or drink until Paul is dead. Now they think they're going to, they got a plan. And they think they're going to be able to bump Paul off in a day or two. So that's sort of their plan. It's not like they're planning on not eating or drinking forever and ever. They think they can bump him off in the next day or two because they have this big plan for how they're going to do it. So here's their plan. Look at verse 14. They came to the chief priest and the elders and said, We have put ourselves under an oath to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you and the council notify the commander to bring him down to you as though you're going to investigate his case more thoroughly. And as for us, we're ready to kill him before he comes near the place. So here's their plot. The, they, they're, they're, they tell the council leaders, call Paul again. Tell the commander to send him down. We're going to do a better job of investigating him. You'll get your, your charges. We'll figure it out. And as they're escorting him, we'll lie in wait. And as he's being transported to the council chambers, we're going to kill him. That's their plan. But remember, the Lord has already reassured Paul that he's going to get to Rome. So how is Paul going to avoid death in this instance? Well, just look what happens. Verse 16. But the son of Paul's sister heard about the ambush. Now, we know nothing about Paul's extended family, but here's his nephew, and he's in Jerusalem. We would surmise, based on what we know about Paul and his family, that he's there to study. But we don't know for sure. We don't know if Paul's sister is living in Jerusalem either, or if this man, like Paul had been, just was sent to Jerusalem to study and be brought up uh, under the rabbis there in Jerusalem. So we know nothing, but somehow he's there and he hears about this death plot. Somehow he was in the right place at the right time. Somehow someone mentioned it to him, right? Somehow, remember, we don't always know how providence works. We don't always Jesus has reassured Paul he's going to testify in Rome. And now, somehow, 
Paul's nephew hears about this death plot on his life. Well, and he hears about it, continuing in verse 16, and he came and entered the barracks and told Paul. So he heard about it somehow. He comes to the barracks and tells Paul. Paul, being a Roman citizen, a Roman citizen with leverage over the commander, is under light protective custody. He's therefore able to welcome visitors. So his nephew comes to him and tells him, hey, here's this plot. Here's the plan. Paul hears that, takes it to heart. Verse 17, Paul called one of the centurions to himself who's guarding him and said, take this young man to the commander for he has something to report to him. He doesn't want to tell him what. He wants to keep it on the down low because he doesn't know who he can trust. And so he tells the centurion, take this young man to the commander. And the centurion does. Verse 18. So he took him, led him to the commander and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me over to him and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. Well, somehow the commander thought, okay, let's take this up. And so the commander takes it seriously. Verse 19, the commander took him by the hand and stepping aside, began to inquire of him privately. So again, he wants to, he figures, okay, Paul sent him to me. For whatever reason, the commander takes it seriously. And for whatever reason, the commander doesn't want everyone to hear about it. He wants to hear privately. And so he asks him, what is it that you have to report to me? And he, Paul's nephew said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down tomorrow to the council as though they were going to inquire somewhat more thoroughly about him. So do not listen to them, for more than 40 of them are in hiding to ambush him. And these men have put themselves under an oath not to eat or drink until they kill him. And now they are ready and waiting for assurance from you. And so the nephew reports to the commander exactly what the plot is. And the commander takes that plot seriously. Verse 22. Then the commander let the young man go, instructing him, tell no one that you have notified me of these things. In other words, let's keep this quiet. We got to keep this on the down low because he believes the Jews are capable of doing this. He knows how the Jews operate. He's seen the hostility towards Paul and he takes this very seriously. And so here's what the commander decides to do. He decides, okay, we got to get Paul out of Jerusalem. I don't even totally know what's going on, but I got to get him out of the city because of the hostility and he's a Roman citizen. So he, he's going to transfer him to Caesarea, verse 23. And he called to him two of the centurions and said, get 200 soldiers. In other words, each of their centuries, they're a centurion, they're over 100 soldiers each. So get 200 soldiers ready by the third hour of the night. Probably we're talking, depending on which timing system we're using, but probably nine at night, but we're not totally sure. So by the third hour of the night to proceed to Caesarea with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. And we're not clear, actually clear what these 200 spearmen are. It's 200 something. And the reason it's unclear is because the word translated spearmen is never used in extant Greek literature or elsewhere in the New Testament until like 500 years after this point in time. So we don't really know what it's referring to. As best as we can say is a Greek term translating some Latin term for some form of military something or other, right? Like we don't fully know exactly what it's referring to. The reason it's translated spearmen is because this particular word begins with the word for of the right hand. And spears in the Roman military were usually used in the right hand. So were bows. So it may be bowmen. It may be spearmen. Some have speculated it just means led horses. We're not totally sure exactly what we're referring to. 
So we don't know exactly if there's 200 spearmen or not. So best we know, there's, there's uh, 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 maybe spearmen or bowmen, maybe extra horses, not totally sure. But <clears throat> there's a good group of military professionals that are going to escort Paul out of Jerusalem. Not only that, verse 24, they were also to provide mounts to put Paul on and to bring him safely to Felix the governor. So they're going to get Paul out of Jerusalem and to try to get him to, to Caesarea to Felix, who's in charge of the entire province, Felix the governor. And the commander is going to write a letter of introduction explaining the situation and why he's sending this Jewish prisoner who's a Roman citizen to Felix. And so he writes a letter. Verse 25, he wrote a letter with the following content, and this is where we get his name, Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor, Felix, greetings. This is standard for how letters work. When you read the New Testament letters, right, you see a similar format, sender, recipient, greetings. And so we get the opening to the letter, and then he's going to write out what happened and who Paul is and why he's sending to him. As I read the letter, listen closely for maybe some slight modifications into the way things actually went down in Jerusalem, because Claudius Lysias wants to protect himself and make himself look good. So listen to the letter, verse 27. When this man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them, I came up to them with troops and rescued him after learning that he was a Roman. And wanting to ascertain the basis for the charges that they were bringing against him, I brought him down to their council. And I found that he was being accused regarding questions in their law, but was not charged with anything deserving death or imprisonment. When I was informed that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, also instructing his accusers to bring charges against him before you. So Claudius Lysias sends Paul to him and sends this letter to introduce Paul and his case to Felix, the governor. And notice the modifications, the changes that he's made in the situation. Notice, I rescued him when I learned that he was a Roman. Well, that's not quite right. Notice what he leaves out, that I didn't learn he was a Roman until I nearly uh, actually broke the law and I actually had him strapped up and was about ready to scourge him. He leaves that whole bit out, makes it sound like he found out he was a Roman before he actually sent troops into the temple to rescue him. Um, he does indicate that he's managed to figure out that, that the situation with him has more to do with Jewish law than Roman law. And thus, Lysias actually implies that Paul's custody should be honorable and without chains because he's a Roman citizen who really has done nothing wrong against Roman law. And the reason he had to send him to him was because of a death plot on his life. So, verse 31, the soldiers in accordance with their orders, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And we don't know exactly where Antipatris is. Scholars speculate that it's a location about 35 miles northwest of Jerusalem. But they get Paul there through the course of the night, wherever it is and however far it is. And 35 miles would be a long way to go in one night. So just trying to sort out what's going on. But they get Paul to Antipatris. And then on the next day, they let the horsemen go with him, and they return to the barracks. So the main body of soldiers return back to Jerusalem on the next day and leave the horsemen to finish taking Paul to Caesarea. Why the change? 
Well, first off, there's a lot of soldiers involved in this whole getting Paul out of the city. And the reason there's a lot of uh, soldiers involved is because there's what massive unrest in Jerusalem anyhow because of growing unrest with nationalism. So the Romans are already sensitive to that. Paul has clearly demonstrated to be a source of agitation for the Jews, and we don't want any uh, rioting or anything like that. Plus, he's a Roman citizen, so we got to protect him. And so a show of force with lots of military personnel would keep anything from happening to Paul and allow him to get safely out of the city. So once they're safely away, now it makes sense for the main body to return back to Jerusalem and the others then to carry on with Paul. Not only that, once you get outside of the central hill lands to the area of about where we kind of speculate that Antipatris is, now you're into sort of the coastal plain, which means things are much more wide open. Visibility is a lot better. There's fewer places for any mobs or groups to hide. And so it's going to be easier to protect Paul over the last little bit of the journey. So the main body returns back to Jerusalem and to the fortress of Antonia. And the 70 horsemen go on with Paul and bring him down to Caesarea. Verse 33, when these horsemen had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. So they bring Paul to the governor, they bring the letter with them, and they here is the prisoner, verse 34. Now when he, Felix, had read it, read the letter, he also asked from which province Paul was, and when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give a hearing to you when your accusers arrive as well. Why does he ask what province he's from? seems like Felix is looking if he can get out of this situation. Can I get out of this case? What's your jurisdiction? He's hoping maybe to pawn Paul off on a lower level official. Unfortunately, Paul's originally from Cilicia, which Cilicia is under the, the ruler of Syria. And the ruler of Syria is actually over Felix, the governor of Judea. And so he's not going to hand Paul off to his boss. That's not going to work. So he's going to have to deal with the case. It comes to his court, basically. And so he says, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive as well. And so Lysias has said, I'm going to instruct uh, the Jews to bring their charges there. And so Felix says, I'll wait for them. And he gave orders for Paul to be kept in Herod's praetorium. Um, in the hub, I will put some pictures and a little background of Caesarea for you to look at. But Herod's praetorium is right on the coast. Uh, it had a like a swimming pool in the center of it. It's a pretty luxurious place. And Paul is going to be kept there as a Roman citizen in light protective custody, awaiting charges to be brought against him from the Romans. And this is the beginning of just a series of trials and defenses over the next few chapters in Acts where Paul is going to have to keep sharing his case. He's going to be brought before various governors and various kings. And this is really like one large story from chapter 23 all the way up through chapter 26. And we don't really get a, a major scene change or even a major topic change for the next three chapters. It's, it's one large story that I think really is a beautiful illustration of, of God's sovereignty at work. Jesus has assured Paul that he's going to stand trial in Rome. It's just not going to be a smooth trip, right? It's not going to go easy, and it's going to take two years of time. And so over the next few chapters, we get to watch how Paul, by faith, trusts God, and God and his sovereignty works 
all to get Paul to stand trial in Rome, as he has told Paul he will, but it takes a couple of years for that to happen. And it reminds us that God's sovereignty works at a different pace and oftentimes in a messy sort of way than we would want or we expect. And we can watch over the next few chapters and see this this sovereignty unfold and how the story unfolds, and it'll help us learn how God's sovereignty, his providential care works. We see it in Paul's case, and it can help us learn how to trust God's sovereignty in our own case as well.